my mother was 37 years of age when she gave birth to me. She was considerably younger when she gave birth to my brother David, who is 13 years older than I am, and my sister Cindy, who is 11 years older than I am. And then when my mother was 37 years of age, along came this unanticipated bundle of joy. <laughs> my interpretation of the narrative. And I remember asking my mother how she responded to the news of being unexpectedly pregnant at the age of 37. And this was her way of describing her response. When I arrived home from the doctors, I sat down on the couch in the living room and didn't move for about an hour and a half. And when I realized I wasn't dreaming, I called your dad and said to him, honey, I've got some good news and some really weird news. The good news is, and I think this will make you happy, I've been praying really, really hard that God would make me into a more productive person. <laughs> the really weird news is that I think I'm going to have to start being much more specific in my prayerful petitions. <laughs> Every birth has a story, right? For some of us, the birth story is well known and often remembered. For others of us, the birth story might be a bit more mysterious, nebulous, cryptic. For some of us, the birth story might be incredibly painful or heartbreaking. But this much is certain, irrespective of the circumstances, in the fairly recent history of our universe, at some point, you were born. And your birth is accompanied by a story, whether you know that story or not. And yet, as essential as physical birth is in the human pilgrimage, there are also what might be described as these metaphorical births that have a way of shaping the trajectory of a life and even determining its content. I've sometimes put it this way, that if physical birth is what brings us into the world, it's our metaphorical births that bring the world into us over time. I would suspect, for example, that many of you have some vivid memories of the experience of being born into an authentic love relationship for the very first time. And isn't that an appropriate image to use? Isn't that a birth of sorts? When you find yourself in those moments of unexpected vulnerability, that feel like a new and maybe even terrifying way of being. Or to take it to a different place in the emotional spectrum, maybe some of you can recall being born into the grief of losing someone you love. The grief of navigating what feels like a whole new life, of figuring out what it means to live without this person in our world. Maybe you've been born into a new career, a new vocational direction. Maybe you've been born into a season of healing and restoration after a long period of pain and suffering and anguish. Maybe you've been born into what I like to call an aha moment, the kind of moment that for a variety of reasons leads to new perspective, new self-understanding new awareness and confidence of our place in the scheme of things, a new way of looking at the world. 
In his novel, King of Thorns, Mark Lawrence puts it this way, maybe each day we die a little bit. Maybe each day we die a little bit and are reborn into different people. Older people with the same clothes and with the same scars, but with a newborn's desperation for life. Maybe we die a little every day and are reborn that way. I'll say it again, if physical birth is what brings us into the world, it's often the metaphorical birth that brings the world into us over the unfolding of time. Jesus must have had the image of birth and rebirth on his mind in the scripture that we heard moments ago from John's gospel. He must. He must have had these images on his mind. A theologically educated leader by the name of Nicodemus comes to visit Jesus, and it's an interesting detail that the name Nicodemus in the Greek language means the victory of the people. It might be the gospel writer's way of making the point that Jesus himself incarnates a unique victory, and that Nicodemus unwittingly bears witness to that victory by his very name, the victory of the people. We're told that Nicodemus comes to visit Jesus by night, and I'm convinced that that particular detail by night is not a throwaway detail by night. The implication is that Nicodemus perhaps was curious enough about this controversial figure, Jesus, to seek him out, but cautious enough not to do it in broad daylight. We do not know what was happening in Nicodemus' life at this point in time. We have absolutely no idea. But enough must have been going on to inspire this nighttime visit to Jesus. And enough must have been going on to inspire Nicodemus to offer what I interpret as a vulnerable acknowledgement of Jesus' uniqueness. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. It's an expression of faith. We know you're a teacher who has come from God. Why? Because we see the signs that you do, and we know that no one can do those signs apart from the presence of God. Signs. And we assume, we assume that Nicodemus is making reference to Jesus' public ministry of healing, the miracles that he's performing. And as a theologically trained leader, Nicodemus reads a narrative. He reads a story in these external signs. They are for him a cue. But as Jesus so frequently does, he shifts the conversation immediately and without segue from the external signs to internal transformation as though, as though the external signs, as impressive as they are, are not ultimately as important to Jesus as how people are processing the reality of what God is doing. And Jesus says this, truly I tell you, no one sees the kingdom of God without being born from above, or born anew, or as it's frequently translated, no one sees the kingdom of God without being born again. 
born again. To be honest with you, even as I speak those words, I am uh, painfully reminded of how frequently the church and the Christian subculture has co-opted, weaponized, and politicized the theological concept of being born again so that it becomes often little more than an artificial line of demarcation or even worse, a framework for a spiritual hierarchy. And often the conversation goes like this. I suspect that you're going to understand what I'm describing, but often the conversation goes like this. Somebody in the conversation says, I'm a Christian. And then someone else in the group either says or thinks something like this. Yeah, but are you a regular Christian or are you one of those born-again Christians? As though the theological concept of rebirth has become yet another means by which to categorize and compartmentalize the human community. And the end result of that kind of thinking in my experience is twofold. First, it deepens the distortion of the world's understanding of what the church is all about. And second, it makes people inside the church reluctant even to talk about the possibility of authentic transformation and rebirth because of how the language has so frequently been manipulated and exploited. You will never get me to believe, friends, you will never get me to believe that manipulation and exploitation is what Jesus had in mind in his interaction with Nicodemus. You will never get me to believe that. I don't believe that in introducing the concept of spiritual rebirth that Jesus was attempting to create a line of demarcation or a spiritual hierarchy. My interpretation, you're free to disagree with it, but my interpretation is that Jesus saw in Nicodemus a curious and perhaps even hurting soul caught up in the rhythms of leadership in that day who desperately needed to be reminded of the truth that in the grace of God, new beginnings are always possible. My interpretation is that Jesus saw in Nicodemus this curious and hurting soul who desperately needed to be reawakened to the possibility of a life being reoriented to the purposes and the priorities of God in a way that feels like healing, in a way that feels like deliverance, in a way that feels like forgiveness, in a way that feels like salvation, and dare I say this in a group of sophisticated New Yorkers, but in a way that feels like rebirth. There's a new kingdom at hand, Jesus seems to be declaring to Nicodemus and to us all these centuries later. There's a new kingdom at hand, not a geographical kingdom, but an inbreaking of God's priorities so that those priorities occupy a space that they had not occupied before. And in this new kingdom, where the politics always reflect the heart of God and no other heart, there is an opportunity, a beautiful opportunity to be born into the abundant life that we have been created to live. I wonder, 
Have any of you over the course of your pilgrimage ever experienced a desperation for that kind of rebirth? I wonder if any of you have walked into this worship service today, even if you did not or do not have the vocabulary with which to name it. I wonder if any of you are here today experiencing that kind of desperation. What could that look like? A sophisticated religious people in 2023. What does the mystery and the mess of rebirth really look like? What could it mean? Maybe we need story for that, and maybe rebirth looks something like this. I accompanied a group of 57 people, youth and adults, on a mission trip to Raynell, West Virginia. And one afternoon, I drove the church van from our work site to a uh, nearby convenience store for the purpose of picking up water and snacks. And by the way, on the side of the church van was printed the name of the church, the vision statement, and then the United Methodist logo, the cross and the flame. And as I was walking out of the convenience store that day, carrying a number of heavy bags, I noticed that there was someone standing beside the church van reading the side of it. And as I moved a little bit closer, I realized that this person was an older woman, probably in her late 70s. Can I help you, ma'am? She turned to me and smiled. Is this your van? Yes, it is. What are you doing all the way down here from Pennsylvania? We're on a... uh, a mission trip from our church. We're here to help people repair their uh, houses and their churches after some of the recent storms that have come through this area. Why in the world are you doing that? And I decided in a split second to go for some lofty spirituality. Well, we're doing that because we think that it's really important to put the love of Jesus into action by helping people any way we can. So that's what we're trying to do. And I have to be brutally confessional with you I was really pleased with how I handled the moment and I was ready to bring it to closure. I'd been polite, I had been courteous, I'd put in a good word for Jesus, I was ready to get into the van and move along and that's kind of what clergy are prone to do. Look, we've done well here, so let's move on to the next thing. She had a different kind of timetable and she indicated that different timetable to me by saying this, you know, I used to go to Sunday school when I was a girl. The bags went down. This woman's name was Bernice, and over the next few moments, she honored me, and that's the truth. She honored me by sharing with me with great vulnerability a portion of her story. And suffice it to say, I won't go into the details, but suffice it to say that she had accumulated over the years of her life more than her fair share of guilt and shame and painful memories. Astonishing. She did confess to me that, to give you some context, that in that conversation, she was not sure if her adult children were alive or dead, two of them. Haven't seen them for 20 years, she said, have no way of reaching out to them. I want to, I long to, but my son and daughter saw their mom at her worst. They left town as soon as they could, and they're not coming back, and I can't blame them for not coming back. I guess, she said, there's no way of ever outrunning the past. She looked at the side of the van, looked back at me, and said, you know, I have a friend who goes to one of those holy roller churches. 
you know, one of those churches where people stand and dance and speak in funny languages. She gave me a Bible about a month ago, told me to start reading the Gospel of John and finding out about Jesus, so I've been trying to do that. And last night, she said, you'll get a kick out of this, but there was some woman on the television preaching about Jesus. I fell asleep to it on the couch, but she was preaching all about Jesus and how he wants a relationship with us and how he wants us to live this new life. And then I'm out walking this afternoon, and I see this, she said, stupid church van. (laughs) Makes me think that maybe... I don't know, is it weird? Maybe Jesus is trying to tell me something. It was at that point that something happened that I was not anticipating. She said, hey, uh, preacher, do you think there would be a way that uh, you could say a prayer for me? I said, yeah, it's the kind of thing I do. Sure, I'd be glad to say a prayer with you. And so I took her hands there in the parking lot and I started to pray. God, thank you for Bernice, thank you. She interrupted me. No, hey, preacher, if we're going to pray, we're going to do it right. And at that point, this 78-year-old woman slowly, carefully dropped to her knees beside the church van in that parking lot, placing her hands on the side of the van to steady herself. That was interesting, but the worst part was that she looked over her shoulder at me as though she expected me to do the same thing. And I don't know about you, but I like my religion dignified, expedient. I'm not given to prayerful acrobatics in public parking lots. But she was giving me this look, and you've received this look, this look that that essentially said, hey, uh, preacher boy, you're not leaving this parking lot until you drop to your knees. Get down here. Do it. And so I did it, and I'll be honest, it was easily the most embarrassing, awkward thing that I've ever done in my life, if you could have seen me that day. But there I was, kneeling beside Bernice with my hands, and I I was trembling. It was so awkward, and I didn't know what I was doing. And I said to her, can I pray now? Is it okay to pray now? Can I pray now? She said, yeah, pray. And I don't remember what I prayed. I just started talking and prayed for Bernice's healing and for her deliverance. But most of all, I think I remember praying that she would see herself differently, that she would see herself as this beautiful uh, person of sacred worth that Jesus declares her to be because I just sensed in that conversation that that's where her her deepest struggle was, uh, experiencing a new story about herself. prayer finished and we pulled ourselves back to our feet and that took some time but she picked up this little stone I remember from the uh, parking lot dusted it off and held out her hand to show it to me preacher she said I'm going to tell you something you might not believe me but I'm telling you the truth I'm going to choose believe to believe that something good and important happened in that praying we just did I'm going to choose to believe that I'm not going to be cynical about it because I'm tired of being cynical I'm going to choose to believe that something good and important just happened in the praying that we did. And I'm going to start carrying this little stone in my pocket for the rest of my life. And on those days, and she said there are many of these, when I'm tempted to reach back for the life that I'm trying to leave behind. I'm going to grab hold of this stone in my pocket. I'm going to hold it really tightly until my fingers bleed if I have to. And the stone's going to make me think back to this parking lot. Parking lot's going to make me think back to this church van. Church van's going to make me think back to this praying that we did here. And the praying that we did here is going to help me to remember. Remember what, Bernice? She smiled and she said, it'll help me to remember that this crazy old Bernice got born into something new one day.
This crazy old Bernice got born into something new. And I wish more than anything that I had some glorious update on Bernice. I have no idea of knowing whether she found her way into the counseling services in that community that I had recommended or if she found her way into the church communities. Can't give you an update, but here's what I can tell you. After that conversation, the theological concept of spiritual rebirth in Jesus stopped being for me merely a theological talking point. And it became instead this clear vision for God's beautiful capacity to reconfigure desperate souls and to reorient wayward lives. Truly, I say to you, no one sees or experiences in its fullness the kingdom of God without being born again. It's not a threat. It's not a tool of manipulation. It's not the creation of an artificial line of demarcation or a spiritual hierarchy. It is an invitation to experience in the grace of God something grand. And I will simply say this, that if you are here today with a desperation that you're not even quite certain of how to name, if you're somebody who feels like you're squeezing your life or squeezing yourself into a life that doesn't even feel like yours anymore, or if you feel somehow trapped in a past story or a pain or a shame or a guilt that have become soul-crushing, take heart. Take heart because in Jesus, the mystery and power of rebirth is only ever a whispered prayer away. Amen.